Well, last weekend was an incredible back-to-school Sunday here at Bachelor Creek. Uh, it was amazing to see all of the students up here on stage as we prayed over them, as we lifted up our teachers and our educators in prayer, and then to see almost 200 of our people go out and pray over our local campuses. Uh, I can't wait to see the fruit of those prayers uh, throughout the upcoming school year as God works in their lives. Uh, we're going to continue to give you opportunities to pray as well. We still have prayer tags in the back that you can grab on your way out today, and uh, they have students' names on those, and that's just a student. If you grab that tag, that you can pray for that student uh, throughout the year, and I hope that you'll do that. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. A lot of the stories in the book of Judges are familiar. We know the story of Samson and Gideon, maybe even Deborah, but the story of Jephthah is one that not many people know because it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible. It's going to leave you feeling deeply unsettled, disturbed. But first, I want to talk to you about hot dogs. Yep, that's right, hot dogs. As Americans, we can eat us some hot dogs. On July 4th, Americans consume what's estimated at 150 million hot dogs. They say if you stretched hot dogs from one end to the other, it would, come from, it would go from here in the United States all the way to Sydney, Australia. Frankly, we love them. All right, you got it. Good, good. I'm a fan of the move toward all beef hot dogs. I welcome that. But if you look at a package of just ordinary, regular hot dogs and the contents of it, the first component that you'll notice is mechanically separated turkey, which the USDA defines as a paste or batter-like poultry product manufactured by forcing turkey bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure a process called advanced meat recovery. Mmm, advanced meat recovery. Other ingredients include corn syrup, beef, salt, sodium phosphate, sodium erythorbate, sodium nitrate, and maltodextrin. Is your mouth watering now? Here's the deal, I actually like hot dogs, but the point is a hot dog isn't pure meat. And I, was, I want to submit to you that most Americans build their faith like a cheap hot dog. They take a little bit of something like this and a, a little bit of, from something over here, and the result is a concoction that hardly resembles Christian faith. It's more than simply bad for you. It's spiritually toxic. And that's what you're going to see with Jephthah today. He's got a little bit of the meat of Christian faith mixed with a whole lot of sodium nitrate and maltodextrin of his culture. So Judges 10, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him. If you're counting, seven gods are listed. Seven is the number of completion in Hebrew, which is to say that Israel has completely abandoned God. Verse 7, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. Now by this point, we notice this is a familiar pattern in the book of Judges. The Israelites serve these false gods and they end up in slavery. But the author presents a twist here. The Israelites cry out to deliverance to the very gods that enslave them. The Ammonites enslave them, and they're crying out to the gods of the Ammonites to save them. Here's what's being taught. 
It's not just that idolatry leads to enslavement. Enslavement leads to more idolatry. When sin enslaves you, you often try to find deliverance by going harder after the very thing that enslaved you in the first place. Now let me stop for a moment because some of you may think, what's this have to do with me? I don't worship any idols. I'm not a slave to anyone or anything. It's a great question. But this is a really important point. An idol in the Bible is not just a statue to which you bow down. An idol is anything that you look to for power and joy and significance apart from God. For example, there are some people who think, if I have success, then I'll have power and joy and security. Or if I achieve some sort of academic recognition. Or they think, because I have some talent or some gifts, maybe it's intelligence, or if I have money, or if I have beauty, or if I am athletically fit. And we think, this is what gives me joy and power and security. Now, these things in and of themselves are fine, of course. But when you look to them instead of God for your power and joy and security, they enslave you. Say, what do you you mean by that? Well, you feel like you can never be happy until you have it, and so you do anything to get it. Or you obsess about not having it. And if and when you do get it, you never feel like you have enough, and then you're worried about losing it. And so you make really destructive choices to hang on to it or to get more of it. You say, I I need more money, and so I'll work until I I destroy my family, or I'll cheat, or I I need a satisfying relationship, so I'll leave this family to find another, or I have to be beautiful, so uh, I have to have, that way I'll have power and joy and significance, and so I I will starve my body to reach a certain size, and then I'll hate myself when I don't get there. Have you ever stopped to consider, the writer of Judges suggests, that maybe the idol itself is wrong? Maybe you have chosen the wrong thing in which to find joy and power and significance. Maybe the person, maybe the reason that you're unhappy in love is not because you haven't found Mr. Right, but it's because ultimate happiness wasn't found in him anyways. Maybe the reason that your spouse complains that you're not the same now that you're successful that she doesn't enjoy being married to you even though you have lots of money is because you've become its slave and it's changed you. Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13 says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is one of the clearest descriptions of sin in the entire Bible. Sin is twofold. Rejecting God and then replacing God. Where where life becomes about desperately digging for another cistern. It's this new relationship. It's this SAT score. It's this achievement. It's this new relationship. We dig, dig, dig deeper, deeper, and deeper. And we're thinking there's got to be satisfying water down here somewhere. And God's saying it's the wrong well. It's not found in any of those things. Verse 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Verse 11, the Lord replied, you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. For the first time in Judges, God says no. Why? 
Well, it's one thing for the wayward prodigal to come home in true repentance. God will always receive someone like that. But imagine a wife who is serially unfaithful, pleading for her husband's security and provision until she finds someone else to take her on. That's what's happening here. These people don't want God. They're just in pain, and they want somebody, anybody, to save them. There has been no change of heart towards God. This is simply a let me use you to get out of trouble situation. You see, there is a difference between worshiping God and using God. It is possible to come to God in an idolatrous way that he will not receive. I see it all the time. There's a man whose marriage begins to fall apart and he panics and so he runs to church and he starts making promises to God. God, please give me my family back. Or he's out of a job and and so he comes and he says, God, I'll do whatever it takes. And at first the repentance looks sincere, right? But it's not. Because the moment that the immediate danger is gone and he gets his family back or he gets his job back, he goes right back to the way that he was before. And so you have to evaluate. Are you using God or are you worshiping God? Verse 15, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. Well, believe it or not, they get it. Do you see how different what they said in verse 15 is compared to what they said in verse 10? In verse 10, they said, we want peace from you. Here in verse 15, they say, we want peace with you even if it continues to mean trouble for us here. See, that's true repentance. It's I don't care if it gets easier, if it gets hard. God, I just want you. You ever notice how some people talk about when they come to Christ as if your life just immediately gets better? Have you heard those testimonies where, you know, I put my faith in Christ and then my marriage turned awesome, my boss gave me a raise, I found oil under our house, like things were great. And I would just say to you that that's not always or even usually how it works. In Scripture, God routinely lets people go through trouble as they're coming back to him to see if they really want him for himself or if they're just trying to use him. Well, the people genuinely repent, and I love this phrase at the end of verse 16, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. That verse right there shows you how God feels about his people. He hurts with them. He says enough, and he rises to his feet. Chapter 11, verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you were the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Jephthah was a rejected man, driven away by his own brothers. He flees to a faraway land, and worthless thugs gather around him where he becomes kind of a crime boss, a land pirate. Verse 4, but... Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Verse 7, Jephthah said to them, 
Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Jephthah responds the same way that God did. You don't really want me. You just want to use me. And so in verse 8, they say, no, 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 no. We're really sorry this time. If you come back, you can be in charge. You can be president. You can do whatever you want. And so in verse, the next verse, Jephthah agrees. Like LeBron, he says, I'm taking my, Cleveland, my talents back home to Cleveland. At first, he tries diplomacy with the Ammonites. He says to the king, why are you attacking us? And the king of the Ammonites says, because you took our land. And Jephthah responds to him in three points of reasoning, which are all pretty good. He says, first, it was actually the Amorites, not the Ammonites' land that we took. Your name was never on the title deed, so get off your high horse, man. Number two, we were just simply responding to their aggression against us when we passed through their land. They attacked us, we kicked their tails, so we kept their land because God had given it to us anyways. And three, if this land is really a gift from your God, Kamosh, then why don't you use his power and come and take it from us? And they say, okay, we're coming. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return and triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will receive it, I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Error to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as abel Kiriam. Thus Israel subdued Amnon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he vowed. There's a couple questions I want to consider. First, why did Jephthah make this vow? Two reasons. One, this is how you pleased pagan gods. You offer sacrifices to gain their favor, and the greater the sacrifice, the greater favor you could earn from your God. But listen, God never ever puts this out as a requirement to get his attention or to gain his favor. In fact, he downright forbids it in Deuteronomy 18.10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. You think, what about Abraham and Isaac, though? Well, that was a test of Abraham's faith and obedience. This is an attempt of Jephthah to pay God back, to negotiate with God. It's totally different. See, here's what's happened. Jephthah has mixed all kinds of sodium phosphates and poultry paste into his faith, and he's come up with something that looks like the meat of faith, but it's not really faith at all. The second reason he does this is because he was desensitized to violence. This was just the way they did things. Human life was cheap when it came to the idol of military dominance. Now, to us, this seems 
unspeakably horrific, but that's just because violence is no longer our idol of choice. And before you and I shake our heads in bewilderment, we commit similar excesses with our idols, and we don't wince nearly as much. For example, a man or a woman can tear apart their family and devastate their kids because she finally realizes that she married the wrong person and she needs to find true love. And so what do we say? Well, she's just being true to herself and I guess she's got to do what she's got to do. But what if true love means that it's not about us anymore? Our culture so confuses true love with self-love. You can't wrap up self-idolatry in the clothes of romance and call that true love. Or in another sphere, a man can neglect his wife and kids in order to get ahead, and what do we say? Well, that's just what it takes to succeed in this line of work. He'll never succeed in the finance world unless you work till nine every night and don't take any days off. I can tell you personally, it has been easy for me to justify the sacrifice of an awful lot on the altar of ministry success. Like Jephthah, I say, God, I gotta do your work. God, if my family, if my relationships, if my integrity have to pay the price, well, God, that's just what it takes. I got to do your work. Or someone in our culture gets pregnant at an inconvenient time, and so they eliminate the child in an abortion, and what do we say? Well, only she has a right to determine what shape her life will take. And if having a kid right now will mess that up, well, that's just okay. That's, that's the price of freedom. Before we shake our heads in bewilderment at Jephthah, we should realize that we are probably not as advanced a culture as we think we are. We just have different idols. Second question, why did Jephthah keep his vow? Maybe you could excuse him in his zeal for saying something stupid, but after he saw it was his daughter, for two months he sat there and he considered it and he still went through with it. He kept it for the same reason he made it. He has no concept of the grace of God. He felt like he had to earn God's favor. And the way that you earned a pagan God's favor was by making sacrifices that guarantee it. And now he feels that if he doesn't keep this horrific vow, then God will punish him. But God doesn't give victory or favor or salvation because we earn it. It's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. He bore in his body the penalty for our peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Should Jephthah have kept this vow? Absolutely not. He, stood, he should have said, God, you never said that you'd give me victory only if I sacrifice something. And so instead, instead of fulfilling this wicked vow in which I thought I could purchase your favor, I repent of making it in the first place. I repent of thinking there was something I could do to earn your favor, and I receive your grace for what it is. It is a gift. Church, this is the gospel. You never have to make promises or sacrifices to God to earn his favor. I feel there are some of you who came in, to, came in here today, and you're really thinking the same thing as Jephthah. You're thinking, God, I really need your blessing. I really need your favor in my life. So, God, I'm making you some promises. God, God I'm going to do better. God, I won't ever do this again. Okay, God, if, if I give you this much money, then maybe you'll approve. And throw, so you throw your lunch money into the offering, and you hope that that buys you a little favor. God's favor is a gift. 
It's like the favor I give to my sons or my daughter. They don't earn it, they just receive it. There's only one way you can please God, only one. It's faith. It's faith in his grace and his loving kindness towards you. Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. It's not the, it's not, it's not, it's not the gift of, of your works. It's not of sacrifices. We don't have to negotiate with God. You can't negotiate with God. In fact, there's only one deal God will ever make. His righteousness for your absolute surrender. This is the pure meat of the gospel with no poultry paste or maltodextrin mixed in. Well, as tragic as this story is, Jephthah's family troubles are just the beginning. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why did you go fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah, who had tried diplomacy with the Ammonites, isn't going to do that with his own people. He immediately calls his men to battle. Verse 4, Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, you see, different parts of Israel spoke with different accents. People from Ephraim couldn't make the shh sound when they said Shibboleth, so what they said was Sibboleth. And that was a sure sign that you were from Ephraim. It's like if I ask you what you call a group of two or more people, and if you responded, you guys, I would know you're from the north, but if you said y'all, I would know that you were either from the south or you're my wife. <laughs> well, when the person said it wrong, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah killed 42,000 of his fellow countrymen. Verse 7, Jephthah led Israel six years. Only six years. They had been oppressed for 18. This is the first time in Judges that the deliverance is shorter than the oppression. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. I want to leave you with four lessons, four life-saving, life-giving lessons. First, our culture influences us more than we realize. Jephthah didn't realize it, but a lot of his outlook on life and on God were more shaped by his culture than it was God's word. And he ends up with a concoction of faith that really isn't Christian faith at all. It was a hot dog instead of a pure steak. And it ended up hurting a lot of people. Where have you done this? I think Christians take one of three approaches when it comes to culture. On one end is assimilate where we just jump right in and accept everything in culture the way that it is, just like Jephthah did. On the opposite extreme is, is isolate. It's where, where we just reject culture altogether, where we live kind of this pseudo-Amish life where we just kind of gather around in our holy huddles and, and we just stay away from everything. The third way is recreate. You can assimilate, you can isolate, or you can recreate, which means you enter into culture, but you do so critically. We affirm what we can, we rebuke what we most, what, what we must. But the only way we can do that 
is if we know the Word of God more than we know our culture. See, the answer isn't to isolate yourself from culture because you can never do that. The answer is to know the Word of God more deeply than you know the poison of the culture around you, which is why Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your Word. You know, with everything that's going on in our culture, a lot of parents have this discussion. Man, should, should I send my kid to public school? Should I send him to public school? Should I homeschool? I think that's a really good discussion. And there's not one right answer. Each, each family has to determine what's best for them, what's best for their kid. But I just know there are some people who think, well, we have to pull them out because everything's so evil. Everything's so, so toxic. Let me tell you this. The most formative thing for our kids is not what the culture around them is doing, but it's how much of the Word of God you're putting into them. Which means that whatever decision you make about your kid's schooling, the one thing that ought to be absolutely solid in their life is how much you are teaching them the Word of God and how actively you have them involved in a place like this. You ought to be having them here at every possible thing that we do. They ought to be involved in our kids' ministry and our students' ministry because our goal is to stuff them full of Bible and so full of truth that when the, the world's culture cuts them, they bleed the word of God. Secondly, our idolatry devastates those around us. The impurity of Jephthah's, Jephthah's faith cost a lot of people, including his own daughter, their lives. The idolatries that we cherish in our own country have effects as devastating on others as Jephthah's was on his own daughter. Today, one of every three children grew up in single-parent homes. And only a fraction of those are because of the death of one of the parents. Most of them are because one or both of the parents decided that their desires were more important than what was best for their family. In the state of Indiana, there are 24 abortions every day. In our culture, 30 million mostly teenage girls have been diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia, which happens in part because of how highly we have idolized a perfect figure. Church, I will say it again, we are not nearly as sophisticated a culture as we think we are. So what's this mean for us practically? It means you should be as zealous for God to work in your life as you are for him to work through you. You need to ask God to help you see your idolatrous blind spots. We gotta know the word of God. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. So yes, ask God to use you, but just as important, ask God to keep revealing to you where idols have replaced him because the greatest gift you can give to anyone else is a heart that is fully obedient to God, a heart that is completely free from idols. That's the best gift I can give to you as your pastor. Number three, God's grace is hard to grasp. God's grace is hard to grasp. It's ironic because it's so simple that a child can understand grace but the most sophisticated religious people miss it. Martin Luther said we are hardwired for works righteousness. Where the moment that we stop thinking about the gospel, our heart defaults to, to having to earn God's favor. So let me tell you for just a minute about the guy up here preaching. I forget it all the time. There are times where I'll be sitting in my office on a Sunday morning looking over my sermon and I'm asking God to bless it. God, God bless the, these words and you know what I'll do? I'll start thinking. 
man, God, I had a pretty awesome week. Had a quiet time every day. I made coffee for my wife each morning. I was kind to my kids. I talked about Jesus with a guy at the store. I even recycled. Like, I'm just killing it this week. And I just feel like God's going to accept me because of how good I was. That he's up there saying, man, look at Joel. He's just dripping with awesome spiritual sauce. Well, let me tell you what happens. A couple weeks pass by and I've got a terrible week. I didn't read my Bible every day. I'm distant from my wife. I kick the dog. We don't even have a dog, which is worse because it means it's somebody else's dog. It's just a terrible week. And you know what happens? Here's what I do. I start making God promises. God, God bless me, and I promise I'll be better next week. As if somehow these promises can earn God's favor. See, naturally, I, I'm a works righteousness guy. And so what I have to do is I have to constantly and consciously remind myself of the gospel. God's righteousness given to you as a gift is the pure meat of the gospel. And so I just want to ask, where do you not get this? Where have you added the sodium nitrate of works into the pure meat of God's grace that he receives you as a gift? Number four, we need a better judge. We need a better judge. This is a recurring theme in the book. Jephthah was a savior, but he was a very broken savior. He was not the true savior that Israel needed. But he presents to us a picture of the true and better judge that was coming. Like Jephthah, you see, Jesus was driven from his brothers. He was despised and rejected by men. But unlike Jephthah, we didn't have to call him back to come help us. He ran back to save us when he could bear our sufferings no longer. Jephthah started his deliverance with diplomacy. But when that didn't work, he wasn't afraid to fight. He killed not only thousands of Amorites, but fellow Israelites as well, and even his own daughter. Yet with Jesus, when the pleading did not work, Jesus took the war into himself. When it came time to die, it was his life, not ours, he took. I didn't have to offer my life or my daughter's life on the altar to earn his favor, for he had already taken that spot. Jesus didn't take us to the River Jordan and threaten to kill us if we didn't say Shibboleth right. He took us to the cross and he pronounced shalom and salvation over us. Jephthah believed that we could only find favor with God through extreme sacrifices. Jesus offered favor with God as a free gift to us because the price had been paid by God himself in Christ. It's why the kid's definition of grace is still the best. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Jephthah was a savior of Israel, but he was a broken savior. And so he, like all the other judges, points us to Jesus who was a perfect savior, broken for the broken. This is the meat of Christianity, that the grace of God is received as a free gift. And it's faith in the grace of God that is the only way for us to be healthy in our faith. We, we don't grow beyond the gospel. It is the gospel all the way through. We just plunge ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into God's grace. Faith in the finished work of grace is what Peter calls the pure milk in the meat of God's word. God's acceptance is given as a gift. It's not as a reward for perfect righteousness. It's not as a response to our extreme sacrifices, but it is a gift of righteousness from God for all who will simply admit how badly they need it and receive it for what it is, a gift of grace. Have you ever received this gift? 
Would you like to? Let's pray. God, we never grow beyond the need of your grace. And I pray if there is anyone here today who has never received the gift that you offer, the free gift of salvation, I pray that today would be the day that they call in the name of Jesus and they ask for Jesus to, to cleanse them of their sins, that they would accept the free gift that you offer. God, free us from this desire of, of, of making promises or thinking that we have to earn your favor. Help us to learn from the story that it's always been grace. It always will be grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.